1: We want to discuss more about the breaking news of President Trump reorganizing his National Security Council, including removing his chief uh, strategist, Stephen Bannon, uh, from this committee. Uh, Ed Goldberg is an adjunct faculty member at NYU Center for Global Affairs. He is uh, also an adjunct professor at Baruch College and joins us here in our Bloomberg 1130 studio. And uh, Ed, we were going to talk uh, initially about uh, President Trump's meeting with President Xi Jinping of China. Today and it's interesting that Steve Bannon was among the people who were supposed to be there, right?
2: Yes, uh, he was. He was one of the people with Secretary of Treasury uh, Munchen, and and. Um Cohn and um, and Jared, um, who are all going to be at the meeting. So who knows what's going to happen now?
1: So what are you expected to come out of this meeting with President uh, Xi from China? Well, it's
2: it's it, look. The goal basically would be stability. I mean, this is what China would like. Um, the the problem is, of course, that President Trump campaigned using um, China as a whipping boy, and with China, and with President Trump truly weak political standing at the moment, does he need to bluster? Uh, surely the Chinese um, know enough about President Trump, seen his personality, and we also have to assume that the Chinese intelligence knows exact much, much more than the Senate Intelligence Committee about what went on with Russians in the election. So the Chinese have a little bit of the um, upper hand here. But they they really need to keep things calm. So one has to assume they're going to offer some um, carrots to Trump, so he could use to say that something was accomplished. But it, it's a difficult meeting.
0: Well, I want to bring in right now uh, Wayne uh, Alex Wayne. He is our politics editor for Bloomberg uh, about this breaking story of President Donald Trump and the reorganization of the National Security Council. Alex, maybe you could just tell us the details.
3: Uh, sure, um, this comes as a bit of a surprise. Uh, the, the administration filed a document with the uh, Federal Register this morning uh, outlining some organizational changes to the National Security Council, which advises uh, Donald Trump on, uh, on foreign policy matters. Um, broadly, the changes place uh, his National Security Advisor, H.R. McMaster, uh, in firm control of everything that the, that the National Security Council does and also everything that the Homeland Security Council does. That's, like, that's a domestic group that, that focuses on, on internal security and border security and that kind of thing. Um, But also of of high interest to people in Washington, Uh, Steve Bannon, the chief strategist, is no longer a member of what's called the Principles Committee of the National Security Council.
1: Ed, from a policy perspective, how does this change in the composition of uh, President Trump's Security Council affect or potentially affect policy going forward?
4: Well,
3: it it seems to give... H.R. McMaster, a much stronger voice in the administration, uh, he is regarded as uh, a, a pretty sober-minded guy um, and probably a, a positive influence on the on the on the president. Um, that's not to say that Steve Bannon is 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 not. I'm not making a judgment here, but there. Steve Bannon is definitely a more controversial figure in Washington. Uh, so yeah. I, I I I am sure that that this change will be uh, applauded by the the president's critics.
1: Ed, what
5: about
2: you? Yeah, I think it, it, it sounds like it, it's, it brings um, our foreign policy direction much more to an even hand, much more rational, um, much less American
0: first instead of America and the world. But this all remains to be seen. As far as policy goes, uh, Alex Wayne, is there any noted change in, in policy because uh, Steve Bannon uh, would be leaving the Security Council?
3: Uh, you know, it was never really evident what Steve Bannon's influence was. Um, he was put in charge of the council when, when Michael, or I'm sorry, not put in charge of the council. He was put on the Principals Committee when Michael Flynn was in charge of the council. Uh, Michael Flynn was a much more controversial figure than H.R. McMaster, um, more of a let's say, erratic figure. Um, So it's possible that Bannon was on the council, the principal's committee at that time, uh, just so that the president would have a closer eye on what Michael Flynn was doing.
1: Um, He may...
3: The president may have more confidence in HR McMaster, quite honestly.
1: Well, you know, talking about policy, Ed, I just want to get your quick thoughts on how North Korea and the launch of yet another missile affects the conversation today uh, that President Xi and President Trump have.
2: Oh, it, it just it just makes it even more complicated. Look, uh, China basically has been been both the protector and um, the pusher to make North Korea more sane for the last, um, you know, 15, 20 years. They they really, from the Chinese perspective, they realize they have a problem. They really don't know how to handle it, I think. On the other hand, they don't want to upset the um, Apple car too much. They don't want, you know,
1: the problem of having 100— right. No, yeah. Well, I guess upsetting the apple cart too much just sort of goes back, Ed, to your, to your comment earlier about trying to, to maintain stability and that that's the goal. Ed Goldberg, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, Ed Goldberg is adjunct faculty at NYU Center for Global Affairs, also the author of The Joint Ventured Nation, Why America Needs a New Foreign Policy. And of course, her thanks to Alex Wayne, politics editor, editor for Bloomberg Well, there is a revolution underway in bond markets. The ETF industry has taken over with a storm. And to find out just how much it has transformed the way of doing business, uh, we want to bring in Bloomberg's Rachel Evans, a corporate finance reporter who wrote a, a tremendous piece on it uh, in Bloomberg's Ma- Markets magazine, as well as Eric Baltunas, senior ETF analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence, who is uh, the guru when it comes to all things ETFs. Uh, Rachel, I want to start with you just to get some perspective on how much bond ETFs have been transforming the debt markets in the
6: U.S.? So this has been going on over the last kind of uh, five to 10 years, really. And it's really a product of changes we saw after the the financial crisis. We saw um, bond uh, bond traders who typically would have been kind of making the market really back away. The inventories went down. And as a result, investors have had to find new ways to actually buy and sell bonds. Now, the ETF at the same time was kind of climbing as a a financial instrument that people could get into and out of very, very quickly. And that's now something that people look to um, when they're trying to get into or out of bonds as kind of a vehicle by which they might do that.
0: Well, Eric Balchunas, maybe you could come in on this. My question has to do with the fact that if you're a bond trader, does that make you different than a bond investor? Are the days of buy and hold over?
4: I think, you know, if you look at the turnover in these different bond ETFs, you look at the Vanguard uh, BND, uh, that thing barely turns over. People are going in there and they like the fact that it's uh, under 10 basis points Uh, You get a diverse group of bonds. I think there's uh, 8,000 bonds in in that fund. Um, And look, that would be one that people buy and hold. Then you have something like HYG, which I refer to as a hotel. People are checking in and checking out of that thing all the time. The turnover is much higher. And I think that's a sort of parallel with the whole ETF universe. It's serving many different investors. But I think this bond movement, the number I like to throw out is if you look at HYG, it only represents one to two percent of the assets in the high yield market, but it accounts for about thirteen percent of the trading so they become really a big part of the trading but um, still relatively small asset wise
1: well and there wouldn't be a revolution without a a, a- good degree of worry that comes along with it. And there are some people who are worried that uh, the sort of framework of an ETF, which is bundling a group of securities uh, and and having that portfolio and then selling shares that trade on on a daily basis, uh, could be problematic, particularly in the debt industry. Uh, Rachel, do you want to explain what some of those concerns are?
6: Sure. I mean, this really kind of relates to the liquidity mismatch, um, as people put it, between um, having something that is exchange traded and can be traded at any point, in the day and some of the underlying instruments that maybe there's a market for them uh, once a week or one, once a day perhaps um, so I mean we've seen through the financial crisis that when um, you know we, we were in the depths of 2008 that sometimes the net asset value of these funds that the value of the underlying holdings diverged significantly from the price now the question really is is kind of what actually represents the the kind of fair value of, of the fund is is the the net asset value a better representation or is it the price and often we we've seen the price of the underlying securities catch up with the ETF.
1: Eric, I want to I get you to weigh in on this, because I know you and I have talked extensively about this issue. Is it fair to say that ETFs, particularly fixed income ETFs, particularly high yield bond ETFs, which we referred to with HYG, is it, is it fair to say they have not been tested by a major crisis?
4: So yes and no. Uh, look, HYG was around in 2008. People forget that. HYG yeah, but was it was tiny. A-
1: Come on, let's be honest.
4: Yeah, it was it was smaller back then, right? So, and it, what Rachel was referring to as the discount, uh, I refer to that as the arbitrage band. It's essentially the price the price has to go down below the NAV before somebody thinks it's worth it to buy the bonds and sell the ETF. And so, the arbitrage band over the last ten years has shrunken incredibly. So, you have two things I think to consider when you think of this. I call it the Jurassic Park concern. Um, when you uh, look, when, when you are looking at uh, the fact that if you were trying to sell high-yield debt on a bad day, uh, you'd probably have a is tough time, if not tougher, than selling uh, shares of the ETF. So I think, you know, look, the ETF is a convenient way to do it, but it, it's not without risk. And I think there is probably some bit of cost that you will have to pay if you wanted to get out on those bad days in the form of just the, the middlemen that are in there making markets. But there's so many more people with their eyes on the trading, especially these big ones like HYG – that you do see more liquidity in the secondary market for them.
0: Rachel, I wonder if you could just uh, tell us about a gentleman named Leighton Chance, uh, because he figures in your article, and I thought it explained an interesting uh, process by which uh, bond investors are investigating exchange traded funds.
6: Right. So Layson was really kind of one of the first um, to, to, to really use this process, and um, with ETFs, basically what he did is he utilized uh, one of the, the interesting features. And he
0: was at the Lockheed Martin Investment Management Company, right? And also he did Tennessee's retirement right, system. Right. And now okay. he's
6: now he's in Texas um, with the Employees Retirement System of Texas. Um, Um, Yeah, so basically, I mean, he utilised kind of this, this function of ETFs whereby you can buy the shares in the ETF either with cash or what's called in kind. Now, in kind uh, creation basically means that you deliver a portfolio of bonds to the ETF provider. And in return, they give you some ETF shares uh, for those uh, bonds. Now, of course, you can either keep those um, ETF shares in your book, and uh, that's a very liquid thing that you can buy more of or sell, or you can sell them and use that kind of cash you free up to to change your portfolio. So he used this as a kind of a novel way to, to change his portfolio from investment grade debt to high yield and treasuries.
0: For more information, just check out the Bloomberg Market Story by Rachel Evans, Bloomberg's corporate finance reporter. Our thanks also to Eric Balchunas, Senior ETF Analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Well, Wall Street's bet against empty malls in the United States is getting too crowded, this according to a report from Citigroup. They instead recommend wagering against individual retailers as the next big short. Well, here to tell us about malls and commercial real estate is Paul Adernato. He is the senior REITs analyst and managing director of BMO Capital Markets, and he joins us here in the studio. Paul, always a pleasure. Thanks for being with us. Uh, let's talk about the uh, the death of the mall. Is it uh, overrated? I mean, have we always been talking about the death of retail and the death of the mall? People uh, yes,
7: uh, Pim. Uh, it's, been, uh, it's been an ongoing story story for for years and years you know first it was going to be bird flu then it was terrorism uh, then it was uh, of course uh, e-commerce years ago and so the mall has always evolved uh, to, to to bring consumers different uh, experiences uh, that would be more like restaurants movie theaters etc so uh, the, the malls have always been just a place for people to meet and a place of commerce And so if we just think more generally about those places, uh, they'll probably survive in some form or another. Uh, They've been very, very good at uh, evolving in the past.
1: Well, Paul, do you think there are specific REITs, real estate investment trusts, that have been oversold as a result of the growing pessimism about the retail sector in general?
7: All right, uh, very good point. So, if we were to separate the the US mall industry into the the most productive malls, those would be companies like uh Simon Property Group, SPG, uh Mace Rich, MAC, and GGP Inc. uh that's uh, symbol GGP. Those would be considered the top-tier operators in the US and um and this group, I think uh, you know has been oversold uh, to some extent the reason I say that is that if we look at the implied cap rate and so really that's just looking at the um, the, the value of the underlying real estate it's trading much much cheaper than the private market value of, of, of real estate uh, substantially cheaper so you know, are the malls, are the mall stocks cheap? Uh, very much so. Um, what will be the catalyst to get them going? Um, that's a little more of a tricky question. I'm not quite sure uh, that we will ever have, you know, evidence until this whole, you know, uh, uh, department store anchor and, and you know, small shop retail uh, 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 evolution has has really played out
0: what about the uh, the payouts uh, from these real estate investment trusts Uh, many people look to those as a source of income Uh, are those payouts covered by the current operations of these uh, companies
7: Uh, yes so so all of the the three companies that I just mentioned have very strong balance sheets Uh, the dividends I would say are not at risk uh, uh, at all
1: You know, we talk about malls and we talk about the carnage that we've seen among retailers, and often we conflate the two because we think so goes the fate of retailers goes the fate of malls. Is this true?
7: Um, There's a very, very big disconnect between the fortunes of retailers and the fortunes of the mall owners. Uh, For instance, the anchors uh, many people don't realize that the anchors pay little or no rent to the mall owner. Uh, historically, they were given the space for free or for a very, very low rent in order to generate traffic for the mall. Now, they haven't really done that for a long time. And, and now it's it's finally playing out that the anchors are, are disappearing or shrinking. But uh, that's just you know kind of a, one example of how Uh, The retailers uh, don't necessarily directly impact the fortunes of the mall owners.
1: Right. Although in evaluating the value of a mall, you have to look at the traffic, the foot traffic of the stores that currently are there. And based on those analyses, do you believe that there is still more pain to be had in the retailers specifically?
7: uh so so there's definitely more pain to be had i mean th- we're we're probably still only in the in the third or fourth inning of the whole uh, e-commerce uh impact on on the retail space so so i do think that there's a lot more transformation that has to occur in terms of the mall traffic it's interesting but the mall owners claim that they don't really track it now they now they're starting to but That's um, ridiculous. <laughs> you know th- this is uh, this is what uh, we're, we're we're hearing and so they say look at things like gift cards uh but they you know they should be able to count cars in the parking lot etc but um but anyway i i guess the point is is that the, the way that people shop in malls uh, is changing, right? So you're probably going to do some research online before you go to a store, whereas you know, 20 years ago, you might have started at one end of the mall and just you know, made your way all the way down to the other end, uh, and that's the way people used to shop. Uh, so, uh, so, so habits are changing, behaviors are changing. Uh, so, so traffic. While it's it's critically important to know that, um, you know, we have to consider the bigger picture as well.
0: Consider Acadia. Realty Trust. This is uh, an interesting company. AKR is the symbol. They've got properties in Brooklyn, Chicago, Washington, San Francisco, uh, Boston's Newbury Street, for example, as well as Milwaukee uh, and and Chicago. It, tell us about Acadia. Why is it different?
7: Uh, sure. So Acadia does not own any mall real estate uh, in terms of the regional malls. They have a few uh, community shopping centers that are grocery anchored, but none of the of the malls that are currently under under scrutiny um so years ago acadia you know saw what was coming as did as did many folks but they actually acted on it and built a company around it and that is the thought that um, dense urban areas, this live, work, play environment is going to be the place that uh, people want to uh, want to be uh, and where commerce will, will occur and also where brand awareness uh, can be uh, established. And so if you talk to retailers today, uh, those that are uh, either uh, doing very well online or those that want a better online presence, they will tell you that they, you know, first you need to have brand awareness, and so brand awareness generally occurs at flagship locations. These are the the very large uh, stores that really, really convey right. the experience uh, of the brand when when you go in. These take these uh, stores are located generally uh, in the the metro areas that you that you just mentioned,
1: Paul. Adornato, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, truly, this is the story of the moment. Is definitely, at least in the debt world and in the real estate world, is what is going to happen among retailers and with commercial real estate, real inve- real estate investment trusts, and all of the other related instruments. Paul Aronato, Senior REITs Analyst, Managing Director at BMO Capital Markets, and he was with us in our Bloomberg 1130 studio.
0: The minutes to the March 14th and 15th FOMC meeting will be released today at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. We will, of course, uh, be bringing that to you. But uh, we know that Federal Reserve officials have been, uh, well, less than transparent in telling us all about what adjustments to the balance sheet of the Federal Reserve they might make. Let's bring in John Augustine. He is the chief investment officer of Huntington National Bank, helping to manage approximately $17.5 billion based in Columbus, Ohio. John can be followed on Twitter at John underscore Augustine. John, thanks very much for being here. As I mentioned, uh, we'll get those uh, meeting minutes uh, at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. Do you expect to hear anything or learn anything about adjustments to the Federal Reserve's balance sheet?
5: We don't think so. We know that debate's obviously picking up to that $4.5 trillion balance sheet. And when they may quit renewing purchases from matured securities there— but we we don't suspect it. it would be rather a surprise, we think, to markets if that showed up in meetings, or excuse me, in meeting minutes this afternoon, but we'll see, you never know.
1: Well, yeah, John, you know, this is my big question right now, because Dan Tarullo today, uh, uh, Fed Chair, in, uh, just who is about to resign. So in fairness, he's not necessarily going to be relevant to this discussion, but he said on a CNBC interview today that uh, he thinks it makes sense to start talking about Possibly unwinding the balance sheet. This follows a lot of Fed talk saying the same thing. Markets have not responded. Are they just saying, we don't believe you? We're going to call your bluff?
5: Potentially. You know, the, the surprise to us today in markets so far is the fact that bond yields have gone nowhere today. Right? And Especially as a matter of fact, the they're, they're slightly lower now on the 10 year as we sit and speak this morning. So the bond market's not buying it. Um, that's buying, for sure, and they're not
1: <laughs> buying the economic recovery either.
5: There, there's two big sets of buyers in the bond market: individual investors through mutual funds, and then the tick data shows foreign investors. Now that's dated; that's January's the last report. That's Treasury data, just yeah, to, Treasury, right. Treasury international Flow. So, there you go. Yes, sorry, but anyways, there's there's still big buyers prevalent in the bond market, and it's it's a it's a surprise to us at our shop at Huntington this year to see yields this low and now having negative real rates.
0: Is it possible that we're getting a demographic shift in the investor base that as people age, the baby boomers age, that they will be getting out of stocks and moving into treasuries because they want the security and the consistency of return?
5: Potentially, but we think, at least at our shop, as we look out for our customers, again, you know, I'd rather almost own Johnson & Johnson stock right now and get 3% dividend yield than a bond right now and get 1%. So yields, we would say, we still strive for 3% in our income-focused portfolios. I'm still below that on a 10-year Treasury yield. So that may be correct. We're just not approaching it that way, at least at Huntington.
1: So let's say uh, we do get some hints about balance sheet discussions at the Fed today at 2 o'clock when we get the FOMC meeting minutes. Uh, Do you think that there will be a, a severe, potentially severe market reaction?
5: Potentially. Now, and by the way, we may be following Europe a little bit this morning too. That bond market's quiet, and we tend to follow the European bond market till the afternoon, so it'll be more interesting here this afternoon. Now, if we do get indication that they may try to at least stop growth or lower the balance sheet, yes, we would suspect you're going to eventually get a reaction in the bond market. Again, that's the surprise to us this year, we haven't to most any news.
1: Just to give some perspective on the Fed's balance sheet, it is about $4.5 trillion. It has been expanding since the financial crisis uh, when the Fed started to engage in buying uh, bonds and increasingly mortgages as well. Uh, Back in 2009, it was nearly $1.8 trillion. So it has, wow, it is really, it's more than doubled, nearly tripled.
5: But think of this for this afternoon, though. One interesting thing this afternoon, what's on our mind is, what are they going to do in the second half of the year? And are they going to change their dialogue around the second half of the year? In other words, are they thinking more than three rate increases this year? Because we do think the Fed's going to have an impact on not only the yield curve, treasury yield curve, but potentially stock valuations in the second half of the year if their discussion and meeting minutes gets more hawkish. That is what we're watching this afternoon.
0: All right, let's talk about stock valuations for just a moment. If you had a portfolio manager that consistently made 10% a year, what would you say? Hire him first. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, the reason I ask you this is because you know, if you happen to buy a Nasdaq fund, right? Just track the Nasdaq, you're up 10%. So, why not just get out now? Why do we never hear when you should sell and take some profits?
5: So, we're we're a long-only shop in general. And our clients are hiring us to basically keep them fully invested unless we see a recession coming. We don't see a recession coming. Alternatives to equities are difficult right now because you could argue most all markets are expensive. So what we're doing is making sure diversification plays into equity markets. We're rotating as those valuations ebb and flow. Uh, This is an environment we as discretionary money managers don't particularly like, but it's kind of the one that's handed to us. I got negative real yields coming out of bonds, and I got cash that's still well below the inflation rate. So equities are where we have to focus and do it diligently for clients. We have to be more diligent. You're right.
1: How concerned are you about a sort of perfect storm where longer yields rise substantially and stocks sell off, which is something that people have been worried about? How do you diversify then?
5: Well, then that at least would provide us potentially an avenue to rotate from stocks into bonds.
1: How high would yields have to go on the 30 year or the 10 year for you to make that rotation? Right
5: now, we're somewhere between 2.8 and 3.0%. That's what our fixed income on team's looking year. at on the 10 year. That's what our fixed income team's looking at. We've been talking about that already most of this year, when rates got to 2.6 earlier this year, but then, but then rolled over. So we're, we're kind of setting a number there in our mind, and we're kind of setting it around the potential for real GDP. We're kind of using that as our barometer to see when we wanna make the, when we potentially want to make that switch.
0: You mentioned rotation, and I'm wondering if you could tell us what you're rotating out of and what are you rotating into?
5: Well, in sectors, for instance, what we're talking to our equity team about is or Excuse me, technology has been where the action is so far this year. It's the only sector up double digits. Energy, by contrast, is the one down one of the two down so far this year. So there's one potential rotation, not to sell out wholesale, but just trim some gains and add now that oil seems to wanna hang around $50 a barrel. So Pim, that's one. The second one we've been talking, talking about consistently and we've been early on is small and mid caps. If we're going to get some fiscal programs here in the U.S., some policy change, we think that's going to be a beneficiary. And that's on pause right now, but that's another area we're looking at.
1: How long are you going to wait before seeing fiscal stimulus, uh, before saying, all right, maybe this trade isn't, isn't going to work out?
5: Probably Q2. So if we
1: don't see some kind of fiscal stimulus plan uh, by the end of June, yeah, you, everything.
5: You know, in March, we really started seeing restlessness come in markets around that issue from day to day. So, you probably here in the second quarter somewhere.
1: John Augustine, thank you so much for joining us. That was really uh, really fascinating. John Augustine is Chief Investment Officer at Huntington National Bank, overseeing about $17.5 billion, based in Columbus, Ohio. And I thought it was super fascinating, this idea of that bogey, that benchmark at which you get out of sto- at stocks and into bonds to capture that higher yield.